Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Renee DeResta. Renee is the Technical Research Manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, a cross-disciplinary program of research, teaching, and policy engagement for the study of abuse in current information technology. Renee investigates the spread of malign narratives across social networks and assists policymakers in devising responses to the problem. Renee has studied influence operations, computational propaganda in the context of pseudoscience conspiracies, terrorist activities, and state-sponsored information warfare. She has advised Congress, the State Department, and other academic, civil society, and business organizations on these topics. Ah, quite timely, to say the very least. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah, and uh, I understand you're a, a new mother. In the same way as people listen, I'm a new granddad. Yeah, that's yeah, a yes that's to exciting. babies. <laughs> Yay, babies. Yeah, that's a yes to babies. Gives us a reason to fight for the future, right? Exactly. Exactly. All right, before we get going here on the body of the show, let me do a non-ad. Uh, the reason I say a non-ad is because nobody's paying me to say this. I'd like to call out as worth watching for sure the new movie, The Social Dilemma, on Netflix. This documentary drama explores the dangerous human impact of social networking with tech experts sounding the alarm on their own creations. My friend Tristan Harris of Humane Tech and a previous guest on the show has a significant role in the movie. And Renee just told me she's in it too. So folks, watch it. The Social Dilemma on Netflix. This is important stuff. And this is a theme we've come back to again and again on the show, uh, previous episodes on the topics we're going to talk about today include Tristan Harris, Back a Ways, Stephen Levy, where we talked with him about his great new book about Facebook, and most recently, uh, Philip Howard, where we dug into the research he and his people at Oxford have done on paid manipulators of disinformation on the Internet. Renee comes to us from the Stanford Internet Observatory, as we mentioned. Let's start with what do you all do over there? Yeah, it's a great question. So we are a relatively new center within the Cybersecurity Policy Center at Stanford, started by Alex Stamos, who was Facebook's chief security officer. And we have uh, sort of three main areas of work. So we look at uh, forensic analysis of attributed influence operations. So what that means is when there is a data set in the world that is linked to a bad actor, and we can talk a little bit about attribution and what kinds of actors those are when we chat, but we look at what were the kind of tactics, techniques, and procedures that that actor used to execute that influence operation. So how did they do it? Why did they do it? What was the goal? How successful was it? Uh, we do basically the kind of very thorough analysis, and then we release those. Oftentimes, we'll release them with uh, Facebook or Twitter. You know, they'll do a takedown, and then we will be one of the independent researchers that analyze analyzes the data set. So that's kind of bucket one. Bucket two is we develop uh, technology and methodologies for proactive detection campaigns. We believe that finding influence operations after the fact is, you know, while it teaches us a lot about them, we should be taking that learning and 
uh, transferring it into ways to find and mitigate the operations in the earliest possible stage. So to that end, right now, we're working on a lot of election integrity work, looking specifically at how do we do early detection of narratives related to voter suppression or misleading information about ballots, that sort of thing. And then the third bucket is taking all of that other research and turning it into something that policymakers can use uh, to better understand how the information ecosystem works and then how it should work. So if, if there are kind of gaps there where we see repeatedly certain types of manipulation or misleading processes, uh, what are the ways that we can implement change to be more preventative so that those things don't happen? And sometimes that's with policymakers, uh, like at a state or federal level. And then other times that's actually engaging directly with kind of policy teams at the tech platforms. You know, one example would be saying something like, hey, you guys should really label state media in tweets. That would be a great thing to have done. Just kind of one example of the sort of thing where when you see kind of uh, state media repeatedly being involved in spreading particular types of narratives saying, hey, you know, allow them on the platform, but maybe we could do more to ensure that the public is properly informed. You have state media talking about people like RT who are kind of quasi-state media. What, when you say state media, what do you mean by that? So some of our early research on that that kind of informed the policy was actually looking at China. It was looking at CGTN, China Daily, you know, a range of uh, China's remarkable state media properties, which have very, very many followers, including on Western social media platforms. So we look at the relationship between broadcast and social media. So that's uh, on the broadcast front. You know, we do kind of include print in there because there's no good way to say, you know, all media, but social. Um, but so we're looking at the all possible channels and we treat social as yet one more channel. So we're understanding how broadcast media information on the internet is also oftentimes a part of achieving influence. And so, for example, during the emergence of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we began to pay pretty close attention to what Chinese state media on Facebook and Twitter were saying uh, and kind of contrasting that with not only the secret surreptitious, you know, automated and persona accounts that China was running, but also looking at how the covert side of the operation and then this very overt uh, attributable state propaganda operation work in concert to put out a particular narrative or kind of convey the Chinese point of view on coronavirus. That's just one example. You know, many different countries have state media. It's not a de facto problematic. It's more a matter of certain state medias oftentimes will be a little bit looser with the truth. And when that's happening repeatedly, uh, just kind of creating a system whereby anybody who encounters this content at least knows that they're, that they're getting information from state media, I think is a goal that we had towards improving informedness of the public. So, you know, it's pretty tough to know the name of an editor of a Chinese state media account on Twitter. When you see that tweet or you see that content, it's not immediately obvious that that person may have uh, an agenda or an editorial line. And so including a little bit more of a labeling, you know, function to let people know that that's happening is something that we thought was a policy worth advancing. Uh, have the platforms taken you up on that? The platforms did make that change, actually. Uh, Twitter has a label now that's actually very, very well done. They label not only the state entity itself, but they also label significant employees, meaning the, you know, the the main editors. And so now when you see tweets from a variety of state media, and they're kind of constantly evaluating what entities belong on that list. But right now you'll see a note that says there, there's a little... Um, label under the account that lets you know that this is attributable to a state entity. And so it just provides a little bit of extra context. 
That sounds like a good win. Tells you you've had some influence. Now, I'm just curious. Do they also tag, say, something like Voice of America as state media? They currently do not. And that is a very interesting debate. Right now, the question is, how do you define state media? And so what they did was there was a focus on independence of editorial standards and funding, you know, kind of various spectrum there. And so BBC and Voice of America are not currently labeled as state media because they are editorially independent. That is something that is, you know, when <laughs> when you put out a tweet related to something related to, you know, kind of Chinese state media, there will be people who will come and reply to you and tell you that Voice of America should be labeled as well. And that is a really kind of an ongoing, uh, ongoing question, right? Where which of these entities should be labeled. So interesting. Yeah, it's all these all these interesting corner cases that we have to think through, right? Yep. And we'll talk about some of them because that's unfortunately, you know, this whole idea of bad faith discourse and vandalism on the internet ends up leading us to a bunch of corner cases which are damn difficult, right? And that's and that's where, you know, sort of the art and maybe some of the science of this can make life better for people. On your website, it says, among the Internet Observatory's first policy goals to deliver recommendations on how to jointly protect the 2020 U.S. presidential election and deliver those to Congress and the major technology firms. Obviously, this is uh, top of mind to a lot of people. What have you all done in this area? Yeah, so we have an entity called the Election Integrity Project which has its own website, actually. So if you Google for Election Integrity Project, embarrassingly, I don't have the domain off the top of my head. But we have a team of kind of four core research organizations. So there's us at Stanford. There's a University of Washington, uh, Professor Kate Starbird's team. There is the Digital Forensics Research Lab, DFR Lab, uh, out of the Atlantic Council. And then there is a company called Graphica, which if you spoke with Phil Howard at Oxford, uh, he works very closely with Graphica to do some of his research. And Graphica has an excellent team, um, researcher Camille Francois over there, working as you know, the sort of four of us have both quantitative and qualitative analysis capabilities. We've chosen to focus, again, as I said, rather narrowly. We don't want to be the fact-checking police anytime President Trump or Vice President Biden say something about the other that's not true. That's There are other people who are working on that. Uh, what we're doing is we're really focusing quite narrowly on um, misleading information related to the ballots, the process of voting, the rules of voting, so voter suppression narratives, uh, narratives about, you know, misleading narratives about ballots. So we're focusing on looking at how those situations, really the mechanics of voting, uh, are playing out. And what we've done is we've built a broader network outside of just the four research organizations that connects with uh, CISA, a Department of Homeland Security, so some government stakeholders, connection to state and local sort of secretaries of state and folks who are responsible for ensuring election integrity in their locales, uh, civil society, which oftentimes are the kind of first to see manipulative information targeting their community. So a variety of, again, this is nonpartisan, so a variety of civil society organizations, including some that are, you know, kind of seen as more on the left or more on the right. And then let's see, so, oh, the last stakeholders, of course, are the tech companies. So we do work with and communicate with the platforms to ensure that we're able to when we see something uh, that merits a second look, communicate that to their teams as well. Have they given you access to their data? So we use a variety of tools. Um, we have CrowdTangle through Facebook. We have you know various uh, kind of API research access uh, through Twitter. 
Uh, you know, again, the sorts of things that any academic can apply for. So nothing. <laughs> so we're working with them on, you know, we, we develop tools using a variety of APIs and ways to ingest data that are that is accessible to researchers. And then because there is stuff that we don't have access to because of user privacy and other constraints, we would take something and then surface it to the platforms and say, hey, this merits a second look with the additional visibility that you may have into what is, you know, what is this account? Is this account behaving anomalously in terms of its logins or its device, or is it connected to other accounts uh, in certain ways? Is it co-admins of a page? Things that we can't see, but the platforms can see. So we have this pipeline where uh, any entity that sees something anomalous can flag it, and a consortium of researchers will look at it, and then it will be uh, elevated to the appropriate people, both to investigate it in the case of the platforms, or if there's something that needs to be communicated to the public, then it would be communicated to potentially the media, potentially local media in particular, secretaries of state or others who would be able to put out a PSA, again, to mitigate the impact. Well, that sounds like you guys have a pretty good working relationship. I know in the past, both uh, Tristan Harris and Philip Howard have complained about the inability to get good data from the platforms. I think, you know, we've made some progress. Phil's team did an analysis of the Russia data set provided to the Senate. So did I. We were kind of each, um, you know, the when the Senate asked for that analysis into the social media data sets back then, that was actually the first time that information was provided to researchers. And you know, we, we weren't in communication with the platforms at all during that process. It was very much a platforms provided the data to the Senate. The Senate asked independent researchers to analyze it. Relationship has really changed quite dramatically beginning in, I would say, early 2018. So for a couple of years now, there's been more progress. It's, it's not perfect yet, but it's, uh, it's definitely light years beyond where we were in 2016. Well, that's good. What are you all seeing? Can you, can you have any trends or issues that you're seeing, in, in, particularly in this narrow era of people trying to do voter suppression or put out misinformation about voting rules, things of that sort? Yeah, it's it's really, it's pretty fascinating. So the adversaries have evolved since 2016 as well, <laughs> as one should expect. Um, so what we see is the, there's foreign and domestic misinformation and disinformation, right? There's no, uh, you know, this is not something that only uh, only Russia does. And so one of the challenges has been, how do we recognize that there are certain types of activities that are okay when Americans do them, uh, but, you know, inauthentic when executed by uh, by foreign actors. So there's always that that process of looking for disinformation campaigns executed by manipulative actors. Then there's the sort of dynamic of misinformation that goes viral. Some sort of uh, somebody got something wrong, said something wrong, made a claim. Sometimes there's a deliberateness to it, right? A hoax or disinformation. We use disinformation to refer to something that's deliberately misleading and misinformation to refer to something that is accidentally misleading. In the case of misinformation, the community continues to spread the story because they sincerely believe it. They think that they're kind of altruistically helping their community, whereas the people who are involved in spreading a disinformation campaign in the early stages know that what they're saying is inauthentic or false or being manipulatively distributed. And so we're looking for both types of activities. 
And again, either can be executed by a domestic or a foreign actor. And so we are not really distinguishing along those lines when we're looking at the narratives, but in terms of how the platforms respond to them, there's a little bit more variability in what kinds of accounts they decide to take down versus what is uh, labeled and kind of continues to stand as a uh, you know, free expression issue. There are certain, again, with voting misinformation, uh, the platforms have all recently changed their policies within the last six months to make it quite stringent to ensure that, you know, even misleading domestic information does come down quite quickly, uh, is, you know, fact-checked quite quickly. And they've articulated a range of uh, kind of topics and areas that they're going to intervene on and everything from labeling tweets to throttling virality, ways to kind of minimize the the spread of the stuff. Hmm, interesting. And if you combine, uh, let's say it's domestic and let's say, uh, you know, voter suppression with micro-targeting, you got a pretty powerful combination. You target very precisely who you know to be the other side's voters and hit them with voter suppression stories. Uh, is that what you're seeing? That's well. That's one of the that's one of the things that we're looking for, right? So that's certainly certainly a possibility, and that's where you know Facebook has been even just last week releasing changes to their ad targeting. You know what kinds of entities are allowed to run ads. Again, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the challenges uh, is the kind of edge cases, right? So it's a lot of political advertising is is it's quite valuable, particularly if you are a new candidate running in a small local election and say you want to take on an incumbent, right? That's the kind of thing where you wouldn't want to create policies that would prevent somebody from being discovered. And of course, if they're running in a local race, they would want to do something like target by zip code. However, at the same time, that same, you know, kind of like something that's a tool in one person's hands can be used as a weapon in another person's hands. And so a lot of the challenge is how do you set policy in such a way that uh, recognizes that there are these bad actors who can use the same things that you've tried to provide to enable, you know, some, something that you envision as enabling democracy, in fact, in the wrong hands can be quite detrimental. Yeah. So let's take that case, right? Interestingly, just frankly, for shits and grins, when uh, Facebook first announced that you could register as a political advertiser, I did. I went through and went through the minor hoops to get approved to uh, run ads, uh, political ads. Uh, I haven't actually run any, but I do run the occasional ad to promote my uh, podcast episodes. And you know, I have not really looked into are the targeting tools available for the political ads different than they are for the other ads? Do you have any, anything to say on that? I'm also registered to run political ads. Back in 2015, I started a page related to vaccinations, a pro-vaccination page, just as like a, a mom activist at the time. And I, uh, because vaccines are considered a hot button issue, in order to keep the page going, if we wanted to continue to run ads in the future, we all had to, all of us admins had to get licensed for, you know, fill out the card that comes in the mail and stuff. So, so I have kind of gone through the process. The targeting tools have changed, but you know, particularly since 2015, God, but the targeting tools, some of it is, you know, oftentimes like an investigative journalist will find a loophole or will kind of reveal a way in which manipulation can take place. Uh, and then the the tool is adjusted after the fact. So with vaccination, you know, running ads related to vaccines back in 2015, if you typed in vaccine and you wanted to add target based on interests, only anti-vaccine 
results would appear, which was very interesting. And it was because people were, you know, the, the tool was drawing on what people were putting into their profiles, what pages, you know, sort of very high profile anti-vaccine pages. You could add target somebody who had liked the National Vaccine Information Center, which is an anti-vax organization. But there was no comparable large pro-vaccine organization. And this is a problem with social media, right? There's kind of an asymmetry of passion. You have a lot of the sort of, um, you know, true believer and conspiratorial groups will be far more active, creating far more content, growing pages that were far larger. And this was a dynamic that we saw even in 2015. And then the ad targeting tool would surface that activity, would recognize that this was some sort of distinct interest group and would afford you the ability to target them. But if you wanted to target the opposite, <laughs> there was no similar, you know, there was no similarly passionate group that you could target. So what we wound up doing was actually doing that zip code level targeting and just saying like, okay, we need people calling um, representatives to advocate for vaccination policy in the following zip code areas. Uh, so that's where that's how we're going to run our ads. We're going to abandon interests and and just go with with zip codes and you know certain age demographics and stuff. And it was you know always a challenge. Like when you are a small entity that has a very limited budget, the value of that targeting is that you can you know execute activism campaigns with relatively low spend, right? That's, of course, again, the ideal form of what this allows grassroots organizations to do is for not very much money, grow a movement. Again, the challenge is, you know, at the time, the there was a lot of concern about if you were to limit, for example, anti-vaccine groups, that would lead to sort of a slippery slope of what group would be limited or banned or prevented from targeting people next. So the tool has really gone through so many different iterations. Um, what is a political issue has gone through a range of iterations. Uh, now there's a distinction made for political candidates. That is, you know, I, I am not a candidate, so I, I can't quite see what that you know interface looks like. But there's just such a range of changes that are made kind of on a constant rolling basis as loopholes for misuse become apparent. Yeah, it's a classic. When you read a business contract, we recently uh, bought a real estate property. It was quite funny. You can see how over the years, these uh, purchase and sale contracts are like five times longer than they were 20 years ago, where every weird corner case yeah. has its own paragraph to deal with it. I'm sure uh, the platform ad policies have to be similar. As a adamant pro-vaxxer, I just have to ask, uh, were you guys successful in getting your uh, page up and running and getting good followers? We were, we, interestingly, so we were, uh, yes, the answer is yes. We started the page in part because we wanted to pass a very particular law in California in 2015. And so it was a little bit of a different process. Rather than growing a sustained movement, we set out to pass a particular bill. And so that means that it was sort of, um, we really organized ourselves more for like the sprint as opposed to the marathon. And it's interesting now in the age of coronavirus, and you know, again, vaccinations are such a heated topic of conversation right now as the <laughs> project, what, oh my God, was the Operation uh, Warp Speed is going on to try to get us a coronavirus vaccine. The strength of the anti-vaccine movement as it's grown over the last four years, five years since we got that law passed, a lot of the early learnings that we had as we watched how extraordinarily connected um, the anti-vaccine movement organizers were, the extent to which platform algorithms were inadvertently amplifying them, the extent to which the real 
downstream harms, the offline consequences of allowing the anti-vaccine movement to really explode in size and coordination and uh, as it gradually became quite interlinked with other conspiratorial communities, ways in which that, you know, the sort of nascent infrastructure of the networked activist communities that we saw in 2015 continued to grow over the subsequent five years. Whereas the pro-vaccine side, um, you know, has had some some successes in increasing visibility, particularly as measles has come back in the U.S. and people are concerned, uh, at the same time, did not really enjoy that same kind of algorithmic boosting and, uh, you know, did not really invest the same, you know, to the same extent in growing a sustained kind of counter movement. So watching how that's continued to evolve over the last five years and how that kind of continues to be, <laughs> how that community that, again, I kind of got me into a lot of this has continued to be such a kind of core dynamic uh, for understanding how misinformation and disinformation spread on the internet in 2020. Yeah, that's interesting because if you think about it from, let's call it a biological evolutionary perspective, you know, the nets are an ecosystem yep. and memetics, meme plexes, kind of clusters of memes evolve to adapt to that ecosystem. And sometimes they're done intentionally and sometimes they're not done intentionally. They're essentially uh, more or less accidental theme and variation until something succeeds in the ecosystem. You know, they happen to trigger the repetition. They trigger the recommender on YouTube, for instance, or they uh, used to be the trending topics thing on Facebook. I think they still have it on Twitter. And so uh, you know, we're essentially looking at a classic, both Darwinian and human engineered set of memes that are trying to propagate on an ecosystem. Yeah, that's very true. I think, um, I mean, I love the the metaphor of virality is kind of uh, <laughs> double entendre in this particular case. But one of the things that's very interesting is watching how just new features or new prioritization of um, features shapes both the engagement with these pages and also what the page, you know, how the pages uh, kind of tailor their content in response. So Facebook made some efforts to change how anti-vaccine content was surfaced, just to continue using that example. It was kind of conspiracy theories a little bit more writ large, but anti-vaccine health misinformation in particular, because it was having deleterious effects on public health, right? And so they began to make these changes. They stopped them, for example, from running ads. They stopped accepting money for pushing out health misinformation while continuing to allow them to run ads for political advocacy. So you can run an ad that says, you know, I believe that vaccination is vast government overreach, but you can't run an ad that says vaccines cause autism. So there's sort of, again, that kind of carve out, uh, how do you preserve free expression while not allowing, you know, kind of factually incorrect health misinformation to, you know, put people's health at risk. And so we see those ways in which then you see the anti-vaccine pages, which for years have talked about the autism thing, all of a sudden move more into the, we're parental rights organizations, we're just a libertarian, you know, we have libertarian sensibilities about this. And so now they're running most of their content to stay on the right side of the algorithm. So the sort of core belief is suppressed and the kind of angle that is still palatable for the social media company that is providing them infrastructure uh, is still emphasized, is emphasized instead. So we see little shifts like that. And the other thing is something like, okay, now they can't run ads, but they wanna continue to grow an audience. And so interestingly, they'll run Facebook Lives 
and Facebook's watch tab is increasingly prioritized. They are using their live video. They want people paying attention to it. And so when a page is creating live content, that, that gets kind of bumped up to the top of the feed, right? So inadvertently, you're surfacing this content. If you're, you know, if you're following one of these pages and they go live, uh, that live engagement, the engagement on the live videos, continues to surface the content in the feed, even though the anti-vaccine topic itself has been uh, suppressed to a large extent in search and in the recommendation engine. So while they won't recommend the group, the live feed content will still be surfaced. So it's it's almost like a uh, kind of a constantly evolving arms race. You know, you <laughs> fix one problem and then there's a sort of unintended consequence that comes with uh, with a different feature. And so it's a very kind of constantly evolving yeah, whack-a-mole. ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, any evolutionary system is an arms race, right? That's yep. uh, it just goes with the territory. We're going to come back down a little bit later and talk about what I would call wackadoodle conspiracy theories like anti-vaxxer and QAnon, et cetera. And what are some of the dynamics of that? But let's go back and talk about the 2020 election. We kind of talked in passing about domestic actors who have good game theoretical reasons for micro-targeting and vote suppression against the people who they believe will vote for their opponent. Uh, what about foreign actors? What are you all seeing with respect to foreign actors and vote suppression? Yeah, so Facebook just took down a collection of pages uh, attributed to the Internet Research Agency um, just last week on uh, Thursday, I think it was, maybe maybe Tuesday. And this was a small website called Peace Data, P-E-A-C-E Data. And it, it appeared to be kind of targeting the left, you know, just nominally uh, the kind of the, the Bernie Sanders left. So, you know, an anti-Biden, uh, anti-Biden kind of themes, that sort of thing, uh, but also uh, not pro-Trump. And so there is definitely, I mean, demonstrably at this point, attributed activity from a foreign state actor involving itself in conversations around the election. And of course, they don't limit themselves to conversations about the candidates. They continue to do what they were doing beginning back in 2014, which is targeting social issues. So they insert themselves into the culture wars and they take again you know the american culture war is doing just fine on its own it's you know <laughs> kind of a go on twitter that's the vast majority of unfortunately like what what is hitting trends or these sort of culture war grievances and affronts and so they do take that content and then in this particular case they had made a website they were writing articles but the advances the things that we had begun to see russia testing out out of the us last year uh, were now appearing in the us with this attributed site and that's hiring local journalists so hiring real people, real journalists, uh, paying them a couple hundred bucks a piece. They don't know who they're writing for, of course. They, you know, they were actually reaching out to laid-off journalists and offering them an opportunity to kind of write regular columns, regular short political, you know, political pieces. And so some of these journalists who have now found out that they were inadvertently, unwittingly writing for a Russian front uh, have begun to kind of speak out about what the, what the recruitment process was like, basically. Um, so there is, again, when you are an investigator and you're looking at one of these sites and you're seeing real real people with bylines where if I Google this author's name, here's their Twitter account, here's pictures of their family, here's their vacation photos on Instagram. These are real people. These are not 
you know, kind of thin front sock puppet personas that are very kind of thinly backstopped. This is instead a, a real person. So that franchising, that hiring of real people who are largely unwitting to incorporate them into the operation is something that is uh, is happening. They are also, I mean, they're, they're kind of mixing the real and the fake. There were some fake personas that were you know, the, the editor of the publication appears to have been a persona, but the journalists writing for it were real. And so there's that dynamic. Uh, then, of course, again, we see amplification. So clusters of accounts that exist to amplify content, for example, on Twitter, where they'll all post a link to an article that they want someone to see, and they will at message it to an influencer in hopes that the influencer will see the, you know, see the article and retweet it to their million followers. You know, so right now, I would say the two big themes are amplification, again, of existing American grievances, uh, and then this sort of weird hybrid model of trying to have unwitting real people kind of do the dirty work for you. And those are the kind of two themes that we're really looking at with regard to foreign activity. Now, how does that actually tie to elections? You know, it strikes me that while kind of pernicious from my point of view, it's not entirely obvious why that would be illegal or wrong to be stirring up culture wars, for instance. I mean, sure. Yeah. And so, and that's, that's one of the, um, one of the really interesting debates is, you know, what impact does this have and who should be allowed to do it? So, if we, if we look at the 2016 model, there were three things that were going on. There were attempts to hack online voting systems. There was the social media operation, the Internet Research Agency activity. And with the social media operation, the infiltration of communities. So trying to turn unwitting activists into uh, participants in the operation. And then the third piece was the hack and leak. Uh, so the GRU, which is Russian military intelligence, completely separate organization from the Internet Research Agency, went, hacked the Democratic National Committee uh, and began to release the emails. The, the committee and the Clinton campaign began to release these emails, and they were really leaning into releasing these emails to journalists and then to WikiLeaks. And so a lot of the conversation that we've had, those of us who have investigated, uh, you know, my team has looked at both the Internet Research Agency data set and the GRU data set. And what we find is that the GRU outreach to journalists, that hack and leak operation, really had a remarkable impact on changing the American electorate's conversation about what topics mattered going into Election Day. So if you recall, the first tranche of emails was dropped as a distraction from the Pussygate tape coming out. So the, oh, look, here are Hillary's emails immediately following the Access Hollywood tape. And that changed the conversation, right? So it, it, people focused less on this revelation about then-candidates Trump's kind of character and treatment of women. And the conversation instead shifted to the, you know... <laughs> what was made to sound quite salacious content in these emails. Some of it was actually interesting. Some of it was, you know, this was where the Pizzagate conspiracy actually originated. So sort of weird interpretation of emails about getting dinner. So all this is to say there's different ways, you know, different degrees of impact depending on what kind of attention you manage to capture and to what extent you manage to shift the conversation to be focused on the topics that you want the citizens of a country to be talking about. 
with the social media operation, the value of continuing to kind of perpetuate and exacerbate the culture wars is, you know, as we've seen, there are actual in the streets skirmishes, unfortunately, with some regularity happening right now. So protest movements, for example, the protest and the counter protest, the ability to really rile up both sides of a grievance or argument to entice them to go out into the streets and engage in skirmishes is a thing that we saw Russia do. We, we saw the Internet Research Agency goading Americans in 2016 into going and protesting literally across the street from each other. So they made one page uh, for that was pro-Islam and one page that was pro-Texas secessionists. And they created two events and had two different groups of people go out to the same street and literally protest across the street from each other, one pro-Islam, the other anti-Islam. And kind of police had to come and monitor the situation. There's YouTube footage of these two different groups of Americans screaming at each other across the street. And that's back in 2016. So now when you have a much more heated, uh, much more volatile environment, this is where you see the amplification of suggestions that, you know, violence is imminent, really, in some ways, uh, acting almost as like a, a tinderbox for nudging it to happen. Does that make sense? I feel like that was a very long-winded explanation, and I'm sorry for that. <laughs> oh, that's all right. I thought it was actually good, and it was very rich. I do remember the uh, Russians and the, uh, the Texas secessionists and the uh, pro-Islams. That was a very dirty trick, though. Of course, I have to wonder, don't we do the same thing in Iran? Probably do. I hope we do, actually. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's always the uh, that's always the question is, you know, is the U.S. The U.S. doing it, too? I don't think we do it in quite the same way. Um, the mechanics of, of what, you know, what U.S. government can, you know, can and can't do are quite different. Of course, historically, yes, that was happening. Yeah, for sure. Well, let, let's exit here the 2020 election discussion by what is your sense that Foreign manipulation will be greater this time or less? Have we learned enough to downregulate some of this manipulation or because there's been learning curve on the uh, actor side that it could be greater? What's your thoughts? Yeah, so there are very bright lines around enforcement for foreign actors. So the platforms have this idea of integrity. They're called, you know, the integrity teams or the uh, the teams that are, that are doing this investigation, you know, the kind of constant monitoring of their platforms. And the idea of integrity looks at the actors. So are these accounts what they say they are? You can be a real Texas secessionist, but if you're a Texas secessionist, you know, front persona in Moscow, that's considered an inauthentic <laughs> Texas secessionist. There are some sort of funny thought experiments you can go through on like what exactly is an authentic Texas secessionist. But there is a belief that a foreign person pretending to be an American is inauthentic and needs to come down. Uh, and then the other two criteria are really looking at the content, not from a narrative standpoint, but more from these websites that were created yesterday. Are they kind of blatantly manipulative? And then the other piece is the behavior, the dissemination patterns. So there are some bright lines that say when this is happening, there are certain types of manipulation that won't stand. The problem is those bright lines don't really exist when it's domestic people. So when it's the authentic Texas secessionists who maybe are, you know, coordinating to amplify content, there are some real gray areas around what is acceptable versus in you know, versus unacceptable types of coordination. So if you tell, you know, 
30 of your closest friends to all post the same thing at the same time, well, that's a thing that, you know, that real activists do, right? You know, you want to achieve like sort of a sufficient share of voice all at the same time. If you send that out to your mailing list of 30,000 people to all tweet at the same time, again, the question is, where are the lines around what kind of coordination is acceptable versus uh, what kind of coordination starts to veer into spam or manipulative territory? And that, I think, is our real challenge, right, which is there are clear policies in place that relate to what criteria justify a takedown or what criteria justify a flag. For the domestic stuff, what you see instead is anytime the platform makes a determination that some kind of domestic activity is inappropriate or does violate a policy line, there is sort of a second wave of drama and activism, honestly, associated with whether that platform call was fair or unfair. And whichever kind of political partisan side feels that it won or lost in that call, uh, you know, this is the idea of working the referee, right, uh, is going to come out and either vociferously protest that they were censored or actually potentially try to like nudge it even further and say, well, the platform didn't go far enough. They should have taken down all of this content too, right? And so the, <laughs> so unfortunately what you have is kind of second order domestic battle taking shape around what the platform should do whenever the platform does anything. You know, I'm not at a platform, uh, so I don't know what the internal kind of dynamics around that are, but this is where you have the sense that everybody feels that they're being censored. Everybody feels that the platforms are doing a terrible job moderating. You know, everybody feels that their side's voice isn't being heard. Uh, and so this is where then you start to see prominent lawmakers who are kind of um, provocateurs who will get in and kind of saber rattle about legislation or penalization or even the president signing an executive order to defend the freedom of speech of some group of people. Yeah, there's no doubt that this has become a very hot button. At least at parts of both sides, as you point out, are complaining about you know the platforms themselves being able to put thumbs on the scales, right? You know, I actually worked in the Bernie campaign in 2016, and I can say at the end of that campaign, many of the other workers, not necessarily myself, but many others, thought that Bernie had been screwed by the platforms, right? And then, of course, on the uh, red side, there's a lot of screaming as well that the platforms are deeply biased. And, well, as somebody who helped build some of these, not the current platforms, but earlier generation platforms, I happen to know that, of course, you could put your thumb on the scale if you wanted to. How do we police the platforms to keep them from becoming biased actors on the political scene? Yeah, it's a that's a great question. I think so there've been a couple of independent audits. It would be nice to see more of a kind of consistency there, more more transparency rather than occasional two-year-long audits. There was one looking at conservative bias, there was one looking at civil rights audits. So uh, again, sort of very very different communities that were concerned about how Facebook was was treating their content and their community. There, the platforms do put out these transparency reports where they'll tell you how many reports were filed, how many pieces of content they actioned on. Um, there's not a whole lot of visibility into the specifics there. One area where there is a little more visibility into the specifics is actually in DMCA takedowns, is in copyright takedowns, uh, where there's a 
database that is maintained that lets people have a little more visibility into the specifics of the complaint. I think it's hard because the other dynamic that's happening here is the privacy dynamic, which is what should the platforms, you know, be making public uh, versus what should the platforms, you know, the the prevailing sentiment, particularly in Europe, but also in large parts of the U.S., uh, is that the platforms have too much information about people. And so if they were to put out more information about the kinds of takedowns or specifics or ways that they made a particular call that might have some potential privacy implications. And so there's just, it's sort of a whole range of challenges. I think ultimately there is no, you know, no oversight body for the industry. And one of the things I think about a lot is the way the financial industry has these kind of multi-tiered systems of regulation, right? There's kind of the SEC up at the top, then there's FINRA and some of the self-regulatory bodies that act as kind of internal industry watchdogs. And then at the kind of bottom level, the exchanges themselves can set rules and make determinations about how to maintain market integrity on their particular part of the ecosystem. And so I feel that the tech industry would benefit from a, a system a little bit more like that, where the platforms have their policies and can do these kind of rapid responses, change their policy in response to some sort of manipulation, right? You want them to have that ability to, to act quickly. Then you have the industry consortiums, particularly on topics like terrorism or child exploitation. Those networks do exist. And now we have one, you know, we have that, that same sort of body for uh, election integrity, you know, again, uh, platforms operating in such a way where they're communicating with each other as opposed to only monitoring what's happening within their own walled garden and not communicating threats or manipulation out to their peers. Uh, but then there is still kind of that gap up at the top. There's no SEC type entity that's responsible for looking at overall digital information ecosystem health and constructing regulatory policy that would treat this as an ecosystem, which is what it is. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting and difficult problem. You know, certainly, uh, they make mistakes, or at least from a reasonable perspective, it seems they make mistakes all the time in what they take down. And their appeals processes seem to be nightmares of non-action. Uh, one of my good friends who's been on the show twice, Jordan Hall, who's a real serious oh, yeah. thinker, right? No one can yep. doubt his good faith and analytical skills. He wrote a, a very deep article about QAnon on Medium, and he posted it. And uh, they took it down. And uh, he goes, what? And he went through the appeals process, and they refused to put it back up. Yeah. And we, uh, the, all, all of our friends of Jordan said, what the fuck, dude? What's this? Right? <laughs> and yet they seem to be incapable of reversing uh, what's clearly a erroneous decision. Yeah, hey, there's a there's I mean not small amount of that unfortunately. So there's the you know the kind of first tier moderation is some combination of of AI and contractors, right? Depending on which platform you're talking about and what the topic is. The AI will get things wrong. It's really hard to, you know, to police in context, right? If you say you know, say the word bitch, right? You know, if, if you can mean it in quite a nasty way, or you can mean it as like a term of endearment, depending on how you and your friends engage. Or you could be a dog breeder. Right. <laughs> that too. There you go. Yeah, there was, I think there was like a um, uh, Bush's baked beans when the Facebook ads interface, you know, when the, when the ad requirement came in for political ads, they all of a sudden started getting uh, algorithmically flagged for, you know, for running political content without a permit because Bush's was in the name, you know, uh, even though this is like a bean company, right? So there's right. ways in which the, you know, the AI doesn't behave in the way that 
it should, right? You know, and that and that's trainable to an extent, but you'll never have, you know, for a while yet, I don't think we'll see anything close to the level of nuance required. So there's those flags that result in that, you know, comes down because the algorithm made a decision. Or there's a content moderator somewhere who, again, maybe doesn't have the cultural fluency or uh, doesn't fully understand what's going on. And so they don't take something down that some group of people think should be down, or they take it down and people feel it was a false positive. Uh, and you wind up in the queue of, you know, emailing what feels like the robot. You know? <laughs> Again, it's going into another ticketing system where somebody's going to spend all of two seconds on it. So to address this, you know, the platforms are looking at millions and millions of these things each day or each week, depending on which platform you're talking about. And so there's always going to be some amount of errors. And if the error happens to a high profile enough person or, or the situation feels particularly, you know, it really hits the right notes and emotionally resonates with a large audience, then you'll see the, um, the algorithm got it wrong or the, the moderator got it wrong, story will go viral. And then the platform will reverse the decision. And then again, there'll be kind of a second wave of uh, debate about how could they have gotten it wrong and, you know, who's running the show over there. So it's a real challenge to think about how do you have a moderation system that doesn't, <laughs> like, what's the appropriate amount, you know, do you, which, which side do you err on, more false positives or false negatives? How do you think about what kind of moderation infrastructure you want, and then how do you think about what appeals process you want? So it's just, it's kind of a morass at this point. And I think, I, <laughs> I wish I had something uh, optimistic to say about it. I think Facebook's got this oversight board, which hasn't quite gone, I don't think as, as uh, you know, it's, it's not operational yet, but we're all waiting to see what that turns into. I think that's supposed to be an independent group of people who weigh in on major moderation decisions, meaning, you know, kind of at a policy level as opposed to at an individual per, per content piece level. Yeah, and of course, that's at the per content piece level that people just get totally pissed off, right? Uh, and legitimately so when a good faith article gets whacked. Yeah. I had a crazy idea. I'll run it by you. Tell me what you think, which is that any author should be able to put up a stake of money, any amount they want, up to, let's say, a million dollars or as little as, say, $10. And uh, it's an even money bet with the platform. The call has to be sent to an objective third-party arbitrator, you know, the American Society of Arbitrators, etc. <laughs> and whoever wins gets all the money. So if you think you've clearly been dealt wrong, it's like thousand dollars, Facebook, goddammit, and they're they're required to then send it to the independent arbitrator, and whoever gets the call from the arbitrator gets a thousand bucks from Facebook or gets a thousand bucks from the from the author. That's true. That strikes me as an interesting way to. So only the really important things would get pushed that way, but it would kind of make them put up or shut up, right? <laughs> no, I think, you know, the, it's like the skin in the game argument. I, I totally exactly. get it. I feel, well, the challenge with, uh, you know, Facebook, $1,000 is, you know, <laughs> they're earning that like in a you know, microsecond, right? So <laughs> um, so I think that's, that's one of the challenges. But I, I do think that the, you know, how do you ensure that, bad actors aren't kind of like flooding the moderation appeals line just to, you know, distract people from looking at other things. Uh, you know, it's of course a, a tactic that trolls do use. Right. So. Yeah. It's game theory all the way down, unfortunately, you know, I, you know, and, and it's predictable, right. I remember uh, in the early, relatively early days of Reddit. Oh yeah. Yeah. When brigading got started, can you believe it? When brigading was brand new and I think it, as far as I know, it started on Reddit. 
because of you know the fact that in Reddit the upvotes and downs yeah. upvotes are so significant at what gets attention. And there were organized armies and they were very public about it. It wasn't even against the rules. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, brigading is we just did this takedown analysis for um you know, with with uh, Facebook took down a set of accounts out of Pakistan. A story came out uh last week on Tuesday, so the first week of September on Tuesday. And this was what they were, a lot of what they were doing was these were groups of people who were coordinating in Facebook groups to go report accounts that they saw as being enemies of Islam and enemies of Pakistan. So this is an international phenomenon. <laughs> this is not a thing that is like unique to American trolls or, you know, <laughs> or even American culture. Um, this is a thing that, that happens everywhere. And uh, and it's funny hearing you say brigading. That's the term I use. Also, I've I've spoken with a couple of folks who you know cover tech, and I use the word, and they're like, "What is that?" You know, I'm like that's actually this very very old thing, <laughs> where you motivate people to go take action against kind of a hated other community, and it's it's sort of like this is human nature on the internet. Brigading is an old 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 phenomenon. It's just you know how it manifests depending on which feature set you have or how you you know what algorithm is going to uprank or downvote, you know, uprank or downrank content on Reddit. It's kind of the, up, you know, the upvote downvote phenomenon you mentioned. Facebook will actually, you know, there's, there's debates about whether, um, you know, just the, the sheer number of comments will like level up a post because it's based on engagement, right? And leaving a lot of comments or a lot of likes or a lot of react to or whatever can potentially trigger the algorithm to show something. So you'll see brigades trying to kind of propel certain things to the top uh, just by going and, you know, you'll see them all leave the same hashtag on the on the post, right? So that it will also uh, surface high in search results if somebody is searching for a hashtag on Facebook or Instagram. You know, th- this is really, I think, the big shift that the internet delivered us. It's that people are active participants in the curation process. And I feel like that is the one kind of key takeaway for me as I look at both conspiracy theorists, state-sponsored trolling, you know, disinformation campaigns. Ultimately, it is all about getting groups of people to feel invested enough to take an action, getting groups of people to feel invested enough to work to shape a conversation. And that is what the internet is really, really good at. And why it's increasingly kind of broken down into this series of factions where it's kind of one faction battling against the next for attention, for the, you know, to kind of steer algorithmic curation or algorithmic recommendation by providing the signal that the algorithm is going to use to then take that content and propel it even further. So it's this idea of like participatory virality that's the fundamentally different thing in propaganda and information operations today that was not there 10 years ago. Yeah, or, or it was there 10 years ago, but it wasn't as widespread. Like I would say these games were being played on Reddit 10 years ago, even 15 years ago. But now they're being played at massive scales on Facebook. And yeah, so we get the interaction of a couple of perverse situations. First, particularly once the world goes to advertising-based model for services, both the service and the various partisans are all engaged in attention hijacking. I want your attention above all else, right? And then there's these game-theoretic ways to do it. You know, we have, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Campbell's Law and Goodhart's Law. These are really interesting concepts. Basically, Goodhart's law was the original, which is that in business, you know, once you start measuring something, it's going to get gamed, essentially. And Campbell's law is an extension of that, that, you know, in things like social media, once some set of behaviors produces, from the agent's perspective, beneficial 
outcomes, like for instance, everybody putting the same hashtag on, i.e. the our favorite post gets more attention and hence wins the attention economy game, then those algorithms will become subverted by uh, agentic game theoretic behavior. So, you know, we're kind of caught in this amazing rat race that it's, it's hard to see what the bottom of. And I, you know, I've been helping build the online world since 1980, believe it or not, when I went to work for The Source, which was the very first consumer online service. And I actually designed our second generation email forum system. So I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And I think back about how naive we were, you know, even in 1990, when the EFF started rolling out. And then the, uh, you know, the, the mantra was tools, not rules. You know, we thought that we could develop good enough tools to have emergent good behavior. But uh, God damn it, it's turned out that when you add Campbell's Law to game theory, tools themselves, at least so far, don't seem to be able to get the job done. It's interesting because a few years back, Reddit had kind of a terrible reputation as being this, you know, massive hive of, of trolling and brigading and, you know, outrageous behavior and, and so on and so forth. And one of the things that their moderation framework has now is it really puts a lot of power in the hands of mods at a local level, which is interesting because it's something that Facebook and Twitter kind of can't do. So you have this interesting framework on Reddit where there's varying degrees of tolerance within a community and you know and, and people who are kind of choosing to participate at a, at a smaller size versus Facebook, which has to make things palatable for a much larger audience size and, and same with Twitter. So the distinction between how Reddit, you know, how Reddit operates now where there's kind of like the top level mods, you know, the kind of site-wide people who are responsible for making sure that nothing like outrageous or egregious is happening. Uh, and then the lower level kind of smaller community mods who do more to kind of like set culture and norms within a community and kind of intercede it at a, at a lower level. And, you know, there's even some really basic ones like, you know, subreddits for dogs standing on their hind legs, I think, or maybe it's cats standing on their hind legs. I'm trying to, <laughs> I've seen both, where the rule is you can only post pictures that are kind of of that one thing. And so if you were to come in and post a picture of something that was totally different, your post would be deleted, you know, and eventually you'd be maybe kind of kicked out or prevented from posting. And so there's a, like an interesting dynamic there where the rules are much more specific to local communities uh, and that's something that you don't see as much on Facebook or, uh, you know, places that have to be more broadly appealing or places where it's sort of a more one-size-fits-all rule set. Though that's changing on Facebook, right? Because more and more of the traffic is going to private groups or to public groups, for that matter. And there you do have curation power. I am a lead mod on two fairly large Facebook groups. And uh, we have very powerful tools. We can kick anybody off we want. We can ban them for a while. Uh, we can make who gets in decisions. Uh, we, we have all kinds of interesting little tools. So the Facebook group space is actually uh, forming up to be quite similar in some sense to the old subreddit space. I'm happy to hear they've improved the mod tools. I'm not a moderator of any Facebook groups, so <laughs> member of many mod of zero. But uh, I know that that's been a thing that a lot of moderators have been asking for, you know, to what extent can you have that? But, you know, again, it's an interesting dynamic outside of the view of the public. You know, the secret groups are, you know, sometimes it's hard to, to get a sense of what kinds of behaviors are happening in some of the secret groups and how the platform should handle that from an abuse standpoint. There's also this move, of course, towards nudging people towards uh, even smaller groups, right? WhatsApp 
groups or kind of group chat dynamics that is sort of yet another uh, increasingly private space where people kind of gather outside of the oversight of the algorithm at all if, if they're uh, if they're encrypted. So a lot of changing dynamics around how people organize their, you know, <laughs> where do you put your factions? Where does your faction live? So. Yep. Interesting. And, you know, you have to make hygiene decisions. For instance, in my two groups we make, and I've actually fought for the maintenance of this standard, is that while you have to be admitted to the group, it's world readable. Because I believe that uh, hiding in a private, in a a secret group is bad for the hygiene of the group. Yeah. If you're not prepared to have the world read what you wrote, you shouldn't write it. God damn it. Uh, no, no, for certainly there's some cases where that is not the case, you know, domestic violence or people that have right. embarrassing illnesses or something. But, you know, I would suggest that uh, one should be somewhat suspicious of secret groups unless there's a damn good reason for them. And that's just my own personal bias. And I've actually gotten to big fights in my group. I wanted <laughs> to make them private. And I said, or secret, I should say, make the distinction. I hear, ain't happening. Not as long as I'm lead admin. You want to vote me out, put somebody else in, fine. But for the time being, that's how it's going to stay. Well, that's all very interesting. Let's uh, kind of get a little short on time here. Let's move to another topic which you've written about. One I was very, very interested in and still am. And that's deep fakes. Yeah. Could you tell people what deep fakes are and kind of what the state of play is there? Yeah, sure. So deepfakes, uh, it's a term that refers, it, it was originally a term that referred to generated video, so algorithmically generated video. And this is not video that is produced and then edited in a manipulative way. This is video that is generated from whole cloth by an AI. So in video, let's let's use the example of like a speech by the president. Um, if you were to take footage of Barack Obama, you could, of course, using you know various uh, image editing and video editing tools, potentially splice in different audio or something along those lines. But there would be kind of a video to go back to. There's something where you know you can look at it and sort of see forensically that this video has been edited or altered. In generated video, the AI is producing it, and so the original output is this video of purportedly the president speaking. And so there is nothing that you can kind of check it against. It's sort of just a a video that's produced entirely by the AI. So originally it started off, uh, deep fakes was, you know, (laughs) because some of the first application was uh, was porn, actually. Some of the kind of early work was uh, looking at adult, content and kind of having, you know, superimposing or, or um, having a, a version made with somebody else's face on it. So that was where the, you know, deep fakes kind of uh, really took off. And then now, um, of course, you know, in addition to generating video, you can have AI generated audio, text, and still images as well. And so it's kind of come to be a catch-all term for this sort of generated content. And now I think we're at the point where, you know, there have been a number of ways in which the technology has become, you know, kind of democratized where ordinary people can use sort of primitive generators, primitive versions. So there's a website called thispersondoesnotexist.com and they just kind of constantly are putting out AI-generated faces. And so, you know, ostensibly it's for educational purposes to kind of show people what the technology can do. But then you also see 
kind of manipulative actors going and taking those faces and using them as their social media profile pictures. Because again, you can't reverse image search and see that, oh, this was a stock photo that was cropped or an Instagram picture that was flipped. Uh, instead, it's just a, a, a face that exists nowhere else. And so it, you, know, you might be more inclined to think that it's a real person because there's no immediately accessible way of disproving that. And then with text, the most recent iteration is this tool called uh, GPT-3, and that is AI-generated text. So you feed it a prompt and you give it a kind of a degree, it's called temperature, a degree that of, of creativity, <laughs> and it produces text for you in response to the prompt. So if you were to prompt it with the start of a news article, for example, it could generate the remainder of a news article, or it could, you know, if you give it a prompt of uh, a couple of tweets, it'll generate you more tweets. So it kind of intuits based on the format of the prompt or the instructions that you give it, what kind of textual output you want to see. And so now there's this whole world of AI-generated text, again, that is unique and not repurposed or plagiarized and, you know, kind of reshuffled, but is instead something generated um, by the AI. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. When the deep fakes videos came out, I was very concerned that this could cause some form of information apocalypse. But it's interesting that it didn't, at least not in the West, right? I can't think of a single really major exploit that was done with uh, video deep fakes. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think first, just the regular edited videos are still quite effective, right? So the one of, you know, slow down Nancy Pelosi's speech and she sounds drunk, right? Was, you know, was a, you didn't need a <laughs> sophisticated AI generated Nancy Pelosi video to do that. Uh, somebody just kind of slowed down selective parts and re-released it and like, boom, you had a viral video. Um, but the other thing that I think is interesting and, and my where kind of my thinking has gone on the AI generated kind of the, the risk, relative risks, um, is that when somebody makes a video, you're going to achieve sort of like a, it's, it's going to create a short-term sensational moment, right? Everybody is going to be talking about it. But when you have that dynamic of that sort of short-term sensational footage, you know, the, this, this moment, tons of investigative journalists go and begin to dig in. Tons of researchers begin to go and dig in, uh, authenticating it or trying to figure out where it came from, who made it, you know, it really draws a lot of attention to the content of the video itself, but also to who would have put it out and how it got amplified. So it's one of these things where it's not something that you're sort of surreptitiously and subtly influencing over a long period of time, the way that you could do with generative text. So with generative text, you could just have tons and tons of generated content posted as comments that would be undetectable. Or, you know, the ability to have a bunch of Twitter accounts that are tweeting out generated text. So again, this is a thing that state-sponsored actors do, right? Uh, and they usually have humans running it, but here's an opportunity to just kind of reduce the cost of doing that. And again, reduces the discoverability because you're no longer plagiarizing. And that's a very subtle, you know, kind of slow thing that happens over time. Um, so a little bit of a different strategy, influence in a more of like a, a slow burn kind of uh, long game approach as opposed to the sensationalism of a viral scandalous video. Mm. So I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, I've, I've been curious if there'll be some sort of like October surprise, you know, leaked audio of some sort, right? You could, we, we've seen particularly in American politics, you know, how many times has a politician been undone by some, you know, it was Mitt Romney's, um, 
gosh, that uh, he gave that speech. The makers and the takers. Yeah. Yeah. There've been, there've been a couple of these, like, you know, the leaked audio comes out. So it'll be interesting to see if there's faked leaked audio. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can do this, but again, that'll be a very kind of uh, scandalous, you know, sensational moment. And a lot of people will begin to, to go and investigate. So it'll be interesting to see how these things are used when they're used Interesting. Yeah. The, with respect to the deep videos, I think you actually hit on something here without quite naming it, which is that we've developed a social immune system combining, you know, people who will dig into and find out where this thing came from. And also we probably now have, uh, most of us at least, uh, some reasonable amount of context in which we would look at a video. I suppose we saw a video of Hillary and Bill Clinton telling racist jokes, for instance, right? While there's probably some people that would but most people would say that seems like bullshit to me and probably one of those deep fakes. So in both the kind of the feasibility domain and in the fact, as you point out, that there could be rapid forensic investigation, the deep fake video thing did not seem to happen anywhere nearly as much as the alarms that were being rung about two years ago. I think there's also a lot of kind of public service announcements about it in a sense, right? So yeah. it's one of the few technologies that as it was developing, researchers, civil society, academics were both developing countermeasures, you know, and, you know, detection methodologies. And uh, I mean, even Facebook, Google, you know, range of different tech companies began to kind of put money and resources behind um, detection competitions and things like this. So as the threat was emerging, you know, there's always like any new technology kind of favors the aggressor in the beginning, right? But until the kind of um, countermeasure or policy or rules are put in place. Uh, in this particular case, you had that dynamic happening kind of concurrently with the improvements and developments to the technology. So the public became aware of, uh, of the fact that these things existed also. And that creates kind of an interesting dynamic too, which is that you know, the, <laughs> it actually became potentially, you know, what, what you started to see, like Adobe Voco, Adobe had this product called Voco, which was going to be an audio generator. And when it was announced, the kind of the early beta, sort of early announcements of the, the product in like 2017, I think, what you started to see was actually in some of the, you know, some of the president's surrogates, Jacob Wool in particular, publicly speculating that maybe the Access Hollywood tape had in fact been faked and was a deep fake audio generated with Adobe Voco. So the mere existence of the technology kind of led to certain people insinuating that the technology had been used, even in cases where it hadn't. And so one of the, you know, one of the interesting dynamics was it, it kind of creates just a skepticism, almost like, a, unfortunately, a cynicism, um, you know, among people where the belief in the video or belief in, in any video, whether real or not real, increasingly became like a like a tribal Rorschach test. You know, is, is this a thing that I'm inclined to believe? Well, how do I feel about the person in it as opposed to, you know, waiting for an investigation or assessment or, you know, take on it? And that's sort of a weird place for us to be now, I think, too. The idea that uh, even real video is impugned by hyperpartisans, real audio impugned by hyperpartisans, because the mere existence of the technology to fake it uh, is known to the public. That's interesting. I call it the epistemic question, right, where reality itself may be assumed to be fake because it, we know that it's possible to fake, right? which can essentially highlight what some of us call information nihilism, yeah. <laughs> where we say, we can't believe anything, right? Which I think is a wrong statement, but 
nonetheless, there are people falling into that. But as you do point out, the applications for GPT-3, 4, 5, 6, etc. are uh, perhaps more insidious and maybe more difficult to detect, though I do understand that there are adversarial networks already being developed to detect, at least in some contexts, GPT-3. And I've actually played with GPT-3 some, and it's good, way good, but it flakes out pretty quickly. Yeah. No, I've, I've mastered that for uh, the last couple of weeks, too, on a variety of different projects. I'm kind of fascinated by the, you know, I mean, my job is always like, what are the ways that this will be misused? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's your job, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, so, so I am. Um, so I went, you know, we have a researcher account and, you know, and I looked at it from the standpoint of, is this more effective for long form versus short form generation? You know, what's the, how much human curation is required? And the sense I came away with is, yes, there is, you know, uh, it does tend to kind of go off the rails and ramble as you get towards long form. And, uh, and then, of course, depending on how much freedom you give it, you get better or worse uh, outputs. But I felt that the thing I'm interested in is, you know, to what extent does it reduce the cost kind of to produce a unit of, <laughs> of misinformation, so to speak, where it's, uh, you know, is it still better to hire an army of trolls to write independent content or does this just, you know, do you just kind of generate it with the AI and give it to your one curatorial agent who then kind of populates the Twitter accounts and is that the, the dynamic that starts to take shape? So there's a, a lot of interesting things I think that will, that will come out of GPT-3. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, as long as you keep it short and as long as you don't try to write, you know, a uh, an 800 word op-ed or something. But for a tweet responses, be good, probably. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. Let's see what else we want to talk about here in our remaining time. Ah, you guys had a very interesting bit of work that you did on the virality project about COVID-19 pandemic disinformation. In particular, the, you looked up quite deeply into that wackadoodle video pandemic and how it spread around the world. Would you, would you tell our audience a little bit about that? So the um, Virality Project is a kind of a project that we've had now since about March. And what we've been looking at is um, the phenomenon of COVID-19 and how different state actors uh, and different, you know, kind of the information environment in particular countries are reacting to coronavirus. And there have been so many different kind of conspiratorial, you know, conspiratorial angles related to everything from where the disease originated, what drugs or treatments work. There's a lot of politicization because of the impact that the disease has taken on certain populations. There's been a lot of uh, unrest and and kind of discontent with government responses that has led to interesting narratives emerging as well. So the goal of the Virality Project was to say, we're in a unique environment uh, in which nearly every single country is talking about the same thing. So how can we look at how these narratives are taking shape in different parts of the world and on different types of channels. So we've been looking at everything from uh, overt, again, overt to covert is one angle, which countries are using state media to shape narratives, which countries are reverting to to troll armies and bot farms. Uh, We're looking at which countries are using COVID offensively, so to speak, meaning using it as a way to disparage geopolitical rivals in service to advancing a, you know, inflating their own perception or uh, attacking opposition of some sort. And then we've also looked at how they're handling these narratives internally. So are they using the opportunity to blame an adversary for 
uh, for coronavirus? How are they messaging um, information about cures to their people? And so we've looked at everything from, you know, Chinese state media and what they've had to say about it to conspiracy theorists in the U.S. and the propaganda they've produced and, and assessed, you know, what spreads, what goes viral, what hops from country to country versus staying confined within a country, how are different social platforms handling these information outbreaks on a policy level. So it's been a really interesting ongoing research project for us. And uh, it's it's just, it's been fascinating to have this opportunity to realize that the entire world is talking about the same thing and to really watch how those narratives spread uh, internationally and across platforms. What did you find out? Yeah, so we'll be doing a write-up, I think, uh, in the next month and a half. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on maternity leave, but as soon as I'm back, that's my, uh, you know, two weeks, that's my that's my main project. What we've been seeing is a lot of use of, uh, of available broadcast channels. So there's a huge focus on social media coronavirus misinformation and what social platforms should be doing about it, particularly in the U.S. But what we see is the ways in which state regimes are using all of the information channels at their disposal. Uh, And so what you'll see is Iranian state media putting out particular narratives to advance the idea that COVID was a bioweapon created by the U.S. And then sort of social media accounts may echo that, but it's a very kind of top-down narrative spread through what we call kind of blue check influencers, regime leaders and regime mouthpieces and uh, kind of state media mouthpieces. One thing we see is when state media from an ally, you know, from a from one country puts something out, oftentimes other state media, you know, from countries that they'll have a close relationship with will pick it up and amplify it. We see RT putting out commentary talking about, well, the Iranians are saying that the U.S. created coronavirus. So it allows them to amplify the narrative without taking it on as their own. They're constantly saying, well, these other guys over here are saying it, uh, but they're still using the opportunity to put it out to their audience. So, you know, a report by another state media organization becomes, quote unquote, newsworthy and is used to continue to spread the narrative. With China, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, They rely heavily on censorship within their own media ecosystem, um, but they are, you know, and they they don't allow Facebook or Twitter, uh, you know, their citizens to use these platforms, but they themselves, the government, blue checks and state media are using them to put out the kind of Chinese party line and they're running ads actually to kind of push out content related to their perception of their handling of the coronavirus and the story that they want to tell about how China saved the world from a much worse pandemic by acting very early. Uh, And so they'll put out articles on that and then they'll use Facebook to boost the posts to ensure that that content is seen, you know, very, very much outside of their borders. You see this, you know, within the U.S., you see conspiratorial communities uh, again, you know, the Voice of America wasn't really doing very much on coronavirus. We have sort of a compare and contrast post looking at how VOA was talking about it at the same time that um, that Chinese state media was talking about it. You didn't really see that conspiratorial, you know, those conspiratorial tactics from Voice of America. You didn't see them amplifying other state media, you know, the Russians are saying, the Chinese are saying, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they were just kind of covering the story as it was emerging, largely quite neutrally. So this in the US, what we saw was much more activity from bottom-up accounts. So groups that were pushing along cure conspiracy theories was really what was kind of taking hold and receiving a lot of attention. 
insinuations that our own government had created coronavirus <laughs> were also taking hold, interestingly. So rather than insinuating that it was a, a bioweapon created by others, uh, our conspiracy theorists said that it was a bioweapon created by us. And, you know, this this idea of like vast cover-ups in the vaccine program, concealing the fact that the coronavirus was a a disease that was spread through vaccines and a range of these kind of outlandish conspiracies. So basically it was a huge range of conspiracy theories um, that were alternately spread in some countries by blue check kind of influencer accounts in other countries, much more of a grassroots phenomenon ways in which, you know, these narratives were used both to bolster regimes uh, popularity internally by saying the virus was caused by outsiders or the regime communicating to outsiders that it had behaved responsibly. So a lot of this, you know, multifaceted analysis looking at overt to covert, broadcast to social, and top down and bottom up. Okay, well, thanks. That's very, very interesting. This actually is a good chance to pivot to it, which I guess will be our last topic as we're getting kind of late here on time, which is, as we talked about earlier, you know, there's good game theory, kind of bad faith competition reasons why, you know, the... Uh, uh, state actors or maybe even corrupt business interests would act in bad faith to spread bad ideas. But maybe what's even scarier, right, is the fact that there's an awful lot of good faith crazy shit out there that's <laughs> spreading, spreading like crazy. You know, you talk about the anti-vaxxers. Go, what the hell is wrong with people? You know, if you look at the numbers, 100 Americans have died from vaccines since 1950, and no doubt millions have been saved. I mean, it's not even a close question, right? And the 9-11 truthers, they seem to be a, kind of over now, but that was a crazy-ass thing on the Internet. And, of course, <laughs> you know, the, the crazy thing of the moment is QAnon. Yeah. I know you've done a, done a little research. I know you've talked to some psychologists. You know, what is it about really batshit crazy stuff that gets <laughs> so heavily upregulated on our networks from time to time? So... I think what we started to see was first, uh, you know, you mentioned groups, right? There's been a significant growth of prioritization of groups by Facebook and others where people are kind of nudged into like-minded communities. So this is a normal human behavior thing that's existed since the internet, but then it's really been much more of a focus of the platform to kind of push people into those communities. And what we started to see in 2015 was the kind of conspiracy correlation matrix um, taking hold, which was that if you joined an anti-vaccine group, the recommendation engine would promote a Pizzagate group to you. And then as QAnon began to emerge, would promote a QAnon group to you. So even if you had never typed the word Pizzagate or QAnon in, the algorithm rightly recognized that the greatest predictor of belief in a conspiracy theory is belief in another conspiracy theory, because it's more indicative of a particular alignment around trust, right? So if you distrust the government, if you believe that they're concealing that vaccines cause autism, you know, maybe it's not that much of a stretch to believe that there's, you know, these sort of like vast pedophilia rings that the deep, that the, the Trump is fighting or, you know, that Pizzagate is a thing. Um, so there's this phenomenon by which conspiracy theorists were pushed into other conspiracy theory groups. And I think that was where you started to see like the groundwork really being laid for the interlinking of these communities. And QAnon in particular really became kind of like an omni conspiracy theory where it, as it grew in popularity, there were so many ways to read into the, you know, quote unquote, secret knowledge of Q drops that as various like 
investigators participated in unraveling the secret hidden meaning behind these communications, they would bring in like their read. And so if the group was populated by people who had been referred in through the recommendation engine because of their anti-vaccine proclivities, naturally some of that kind of read would be incorporated into the body of knowledge that began to constitute kind of the, the QAnon canon. And, you know, again, ex expand that out uh, to a whole range, 9-11 truthers, chemtrailers, you know, anti-government, you, you name it. It all kind of got read into this massive omni-conspiracy. It became like this umbrella group for it. And so that's how you have the the kind of interesting kind of community and mythology development. Then you just have the online factional dynamics, right, which is the people who are true believers are very, very inclined to be incredibly passionate about this stuff. And so they go to Twitter and actively are in there constantly engaging because they believe that they're, you know, fighting a, a war, right? They're soldiers in this war for truth. And so they're engaging constantly and pushing this content out. And unfortunately, at times resorting to, you know, to tactics like harassment of celebrities and things like that who get kind of caught up into the mythology. And then media, of course, plays an amplifier role as well in covering it. And so the challenge for mainstream press is always, you know, what do you call attention to versus where do you employ selective silence? In the early days of QAnon, when there was coverage, it was almost like kind of gawking. But then as QAnon began to become increasingly tied up in the sort of Trump wing of the party kind of dynamics with a number of candidates who really used QAnon uh, supporters in their primaries as a source of support, it became increasingly something that was part of the American political ecosystem, where House of Representative candidates were winning their primaries on this energy. Uh, and that's where you started to see more and more coverage of it in the last couple months, which is again, then, you know, it's, it's, uh, the question becomes, how do you cover it in such a way that, you know, explains the zeitgeist and explains the dynamics um, while at the same time not inadvertently pushing people uh, into it in some way. And so that's how, you know, you've seen this kind of um, mainstreaming of the topic where increasing numbers of people have heard of it. And then again, you know, the question becomes by informing the public, do you inoculate them or do you potentially make them more susceptible to participation in the group themselves? Yeah, that's, a, of course, a moral question. I mean, these people are allegedly adults, you know, are they are constitutionally uh, allowed to you know, believe any kind of nonsense they want. Yep. You know, as a confirmed atheist, I frankly have the same view about organized religion, right? Just fucking compounded nonsense, right? But yet it, it hangs in for, for a long period of time. And is it anybody's job to say that you should not be a QAnon believer? It's an interesting question. Yeah, well, and that's where the, you know, the, some of the dynamics around you know, where is the line between conspiracy and cult, right, is a, is an interesting question, particularly when that online factional dynamic, you know, that, that kind of community participation where the orientation is around everybody is a member of this thing because of the shared belief system, right? So the, you know, are we going to see more of this decentralized cult dynamics as, you know, various people come to participate in online groups aligned around various you know, <laughs> weird things that are released onto the internet, you know, claims that people make or whatever that uh, inspire curiosity and then adherence. Yep. And, it, and as we talked about earlier, the nets provide an evolutionary construct in which those crazy theories that stick 
get upregulated and they get modified to be more sticky. So we should expect more of this, I suspect. I think that's true. Yeah. Final exit question. What can individuals do to make themselves less susceptible to all these various kinds of exploits? You know, I'll say one thing people could do, but most people won't, is every year I take a six-month break from Facebook and Twitter. I'm on month two, just about the end of month two of my six-month break. Just clear your head of that shit. But most people don't seem to want to, <laughs> uh, don't seem to, want to do that. Of course, when I come back, I find same shit, different day. It hasn't changed. You know? <laughs> I mean, literally, it's, I mean, did I miss anything at all in six months? That's usually my, my response when I come back is no. But let's assume people aren't willing to be that extreme. What can people do to, be, to have a, a more valuable and positive experience from their use of social media? I think one thing is recognizing, you know, there's, there's a interesting dynamic, um, how do you kind of step outside yourself and understand that you've just seen content that's designed to rile you up, right? Like, what is your first inclination when you see something that you think is outrageous? Is it to retweet it, to DM it to your 10 closest friends? You know, do you sort of feed the outrage cycle or do you recognize it for what it is? I think that's a thing that that I personally have gotten a little bit more, you know, <laughs> maybe jaded because I look at this stuff all day long at this point uh, for years now. But it's the question of, do I need to weigh in on this outrage at this moment? Like, what is the world, you know, what who benefits from me continuing to forward along that that outrage article? And is there, you know, ways to make people think about their role as active participants in the transmission process of this stuff? And that I think is, uh, you know, a, a kind of worthwhile effort in some way, you know, maybe we teach that alongside media literacy. It's not just checking your source, it's also what is the, the purpose of this is for, you know, to create content so that people like you forward it along. Are you helping somebody by forwarding this along or are you just feeding a culture war narrative that keeps people kind of perpetually riled up and angry? So I think that's that that kind of self-inventory is a, is a place that, that I that, that's that's what I try to do now at this point, you know. Do I need to weigh in on this? No. <laughs> Does yeah, the world yeah. need my hot take? Nope. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that alone would make a big difference, wouldn't it? If we all said, is the world going to be a better place uh, if I respond to this? And uh, the answer more often than not is indeed no. Well, thank you, Renee, for a very wonderful, passionate deep dive into what's going on on the net. Thank you. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.